Now, I want you to go with me. We're going to bridge over to um, the book of Galatians. We've been talking for about four or five weeks here about, uh, we've been uh, parked in the book of Psalms, and we've been talking about the God of creation. Today, we're going to begin talking about this idea of recreation, the recreative God, the God who makes you again. And we're going to talk in, in this, really in the month of February, we'll be in, in uh, mostly in Galatians. We're going to talk about how God has made us into a family, a recreated new, uh, new beginnings kind of a family. Let me give you just a little bit of background. Now, by the way, when you, uh, if you were to go to the Super Bowl tonight, and I'm assuming none of you are going or you'd be on an airplane right now or you'd already be there. Um, anytime you're in a room with lots of people, go to the mall um, or you're at a ball game or whatever, you probably notice like I do uh, that people come in all varieties. Have you noticed that? Now, by the way, I am boring enough that when Ron has to go to the mall, I can just watch people for a while. You know, I don't even, I don't even, you know, do Facebook or email. I'll just watch people for a while. It's kind of interesting. Maybe I'm a closet sociologist, but um, that you know, when you look around, you'll notice people are tall and short. They're thin and plump. They're female and male. They got a lot of different shades of skin color and hair color and eye color. And uh, when you get to know somebody who's a little different than you, you might find out that they're quiet or talkative or they're funny or serious or they're trusting or kind of uh, cautious. And, and often it's kind of a fascinating mixture of all kinds of different traits. I love meeting somebody new and getting to know them and thinking, this person's different than anybody I've ever met in my life. When I think of that, the variety with which God has made us I think of the good connotation. By the way, there's a negative connotation floating around. But I think of the good connotation of snowflake. Remember when you were a kid, they'd have you make snowflakes at school? You know, you cut paper and make snowflakes, and, and the idea was no two are alike. God has made you and me that way. Like the variety of snowflakes. Uh, you and I could see somebody on a television show or on a movie and think, boy, she reminds me of, or he reminds me of, but you know they're not identical with anybody you know. They just kind of remind you of that person. There are wonderful variants of personality and looks and all those kinds of things. We enjoy building friendships with people that are different from us sometimes. Our lives are richer because we build bonds with other people. But by the same token, sometimes we feel the barrier between ourselves and others. We may even experience fear when we come across people who are kind of different from me in certain ways. And sometimes it causes us to find it hard to build relationships. God clearly intended to create human beings with infinite variety. We bear God's image, regardless of our individual characteristics. But if we view the variety of the people around us as a threat, we may try to add to the gospel our own requirements for entrance into the church or into the family of faith. 
That's what Paul's going to go after here in this little book of Galatians. Now, let me give you just a little background on the book of Galatians, if you found it by now. We'll be in chapter 3 and a little bit in chapter 4 today, and then we'll be in chapter 4 next week. We're not exactly certain when Paul wrote uh, his letter to the Galatians. He had been there in an earlier trip in his um, kind of gospel ministry. And so we think it was somewhere around the mid-A.D. 50, so 56, 57, somewhere in there. And um, we, we don't know exactly when exactly, but we, all, we do know kind of why he wrote. Some individuals in the churches were teaching Christians of Gentile descent that uh, they had to first become Jewish before they could become Christian. Now, you and I may not see that as a huge barrier, but think about it in terms of the people in this room. If literally that were the case, then at the very minimum, Gentiles would have to sit on one side of the room and Jews on the other side. Uh, add to that the fact that uh, they had a lot of carrion dinners in those days. Gentile folks could eat stuff that Jewish people could not. Can you imagine the scandalous thing that would, we can't eat with them because they might eat bacon. Okay? Can you imagine living your life without having a bacon tomato sandwich? I, it's just, remember, I grew up in Oklahoma, so I, that'd be really, really sad, you know? Having fat back and a few of those kind of things. Well, I was one of the fat back in the beans, but okay, you got that. If God were making himself known through the gospel, initially through the Hebrew people, through the Jewish people, then didn't it make sense that in order to become a Christian, you'd have to be a Jew first? So it becomes kind of scandalous when Paul in the first chapters of the book of Galatians basically says, absolutely not. And he reminds them, as I will remind you here, he was a Jew's Jew. He was um, Jewish through and through and through. So if he could get his mind around this, then he had hoped that they could, and they were just having lots of trouble with this. And so he kind of writes to deal with this. The preaching and acceptance of the gospel repairs the sin-broken relationship between God and a man or a woman. As a happy side effect, the gospel also repairs relationships between men and women, between human to human. I wrote this in my notes. So I just want you to think about it as a backdrop. I want to be sure that when I think about salvation, how God saves people, includes them in the church. I want to be sure it's not my way, but God's way that I wrap my mind around. And that's what the book of Galatians helps us with. And I think we're going to have a good time, I hope, today, uh, kind of dealing with this. Let's go. Um, Mr. Blair, would you either step to the mic or pick it up or something and read? We're going to start with Galatians 3.26 and go down through 29, at least for now. And then, on, and then Miss Sally's going to grab the mic from you in just a minute and help us with that. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay. Sally, if you do, do actually, Steve, you might hand it to her. Just right over here. Okay. And I want you, Sally, first to go to Romans 8, 14 in just a minute. Okay. Now, it seems clear here, as Steve has read, that Paul is asserting that all believers have equal standing before God. That's what goes in your, your first blank. I, I look around the room, and I, want, I, I think about how wonderfully diverse we are. Just even in, in the 170 or so people in this room. We're incredibly diverse. And add to that the variety of life experience we've had. It's not just those of us in this room who have an affection for Midwest City like, like Jopi and Fred and I do, okay? Because we're kind of from out that way. Louise, where'd you grow up? Okay. <laughs> you, you had to come a long way to get here. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Many of us did grow up in Oklahoma City, and that's okay. That's okay. I was talking to Carol this morning who grew up in Alabama near where Rhonda grew up. Yeah. And we're forgiven both of you for that, but uh, yeah. Um, so the idea here is that Paul is saying that we've all got, regardless of where we grew up, regardless of our background, in Christ we have equal standing. Now he asks a question, there's kind of a question I want to hang over verse 27. And then I need to unpack it a little bit. What is that process or that experience that is common to all believers. If, if Paul were to ask that of Jewish Christians in the first century, they might say circumcision. All believers must be circumcised. That's really not the deal, you know. In fact, can you see how that could have been a huge barrier to evangelism? Uh, Sally, I'm going to back up to you. We mind to read Romans 8.14? Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The common experience that's talked about here in verse 27 is this experience of baptism. If you're baptized into Christ, then we're automatically one. We're, we're a brothers. We're sisters. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so... The way baptism though pulls us together or calls us together, um, we, we've got to talk a little bit in what way it does that. Not that baptism saves you. I think the, the gospel is clear about that. Certainly Jesus is clear about that and Paul's very clear about that. But it is our common baptism that represents that common experience of salvation. It's kind of the moniker that says I am his, he is mine, and therefore you and I are related. And the metaphor that's used here in verse 27 is clothing. See that? In 327, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That's a really important and good metaphor here. We've put him on. My uh, uncle, who was one of the funniest guys I've ever known, Skip Hall's dad. Skip, you here? 
we were talking, we were telling a Houston story this morning, getting dressed. I remember, I've got a little car in my garage that I play with some, and I remember if Houston had seen that car, he would say, that's not a car you get into. He'd say, that's a car you put on. You don't get in that car, you put that car on. Okay, now the idea here is that I don't just get into Christ, I put him on. I'm clothed with him in that way. It's a powerful expression here of of this unity idea, all called together in in a common baptism. Does that mean we've got to go through the same uh, baptistry? No. Does that mean we've got to be baptized by the same person? No. Paul talks about that elsewhere, actually. What I want to say is, is that baptism, your relationship with Jesus, is the uniform that calls us together. I'm up here on Tuesday mornings with uh, some fellows in a, in a Bible study first thing on Tuesday morning. And it's kind of interesting that when I leave here, uh, kids are just getting to Crossings Christian School. I'm leaving at quarter to eight or a little bit after that. And kids are coming to school. And the common expression that I see, they may have different shoes on, they've all got different hair, but they have a common uniform that identifies I'm a student going to Crossing Christian School. That the, the, the metaphor here is that you and I have a common uniform that identifies us as being Christian, being having been belonging to Jesus. It's baptism. Terry, you and I celebrated it when, about a year ago? Something like that, okay? Many of you in here have done that recently as adults. That's not necessary, but you felt you felt compelled to do that. Maybe you'd never been baptized in your life. It wasn't that you needed to be baptized here at Crossings. It was just that you wanted to follow Jesus in a believer's baptism. Maybe somebody made that choice for you as an infant or as a child. And now you've made a decision for yourself to follow Christ and you wanted to do that like Terry decided to do. The truth is, baptism is our common uniform. What baptism represents Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is what makes us one. And there's nothing else that's nearly as important as that. And so he's going to go on in verse 28 and talk about no distinctions. And I want to spend a little time here taking some of these distinctions apart that he addresses. If you and I were to rewrite verse 28, don't try it, that's not a... Healthy thing to do, try to rewrite the Bible. A lot of people try to do that throughout history. We might say, um, it doesn't matter whether you're a Ford man or a Chevy man. We might say, it doesn't matter whether you're a Patriot fan or a Falcons fan. Certainly today, that fits a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, some, we might say, it doesn't matter whether you're from the north or from the south. Now, there are some Southerners here who are questioning that line of thinking right now. Doesn't matter whether you're from the North or the South. Uh, you might say, uh, okay, I'm going I'm to get really meddlesome here. You might say, if, if it were be re- being rewritten today, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It just got really quiet in here. I just, okay. Uh, Ed Abel really liked that last statement, okay? Doesn't matter what the, your political affiliation 
Um, what matters is your baptism, okay? So in verse 28, he's going to go after some, some uh, very important distinctions that are torn down, broken down in the church. Now, um, what you need to understand is that, that Galatians 3.28 could not be more important for Paul's day. The teaching here is something that I need to be reminded of nearly every day. And the teaching is extremely important given the political environment of our day too. Basically put, there are no distinctions in Christ. Now let's see what particular distinctions he goes after. He first of all says, there are no uh, ethnic distinctions. Use that word ethnic there in the first blank, okay? Um, um, Gentiles don't have to become Jews first. The word that's used in the, in the uh, New Testament most to, to, to be translated Gentiles here is the word ethnikos, which interesting is the word from which we get our idea of uh, ethnic, uh, ethnic groups or um, your own ethnicity. Uh, I can't say, as they, many of them were saying even, some were saying you must become Jewish before you can become Christian. Others were saying, uh, modifying that a little bit, you don't even hear Paul saying, you know, it'd be, really be better if you'd become a Jew first. Isn't it interesting, if he would have gone that far, this would have changed the whole meaning of, of uh, Galatians 3.28. He doesn't say that. Your ethnicity doesn't matter, he says. So there is no, uh, no ethnic division here. A second, he's going to say there is, no, um, there is no social distinction. Social distinction. In there, he talks about um, um, slaves and free people. Sally, you still got that mic? Would you go to Philemon verse 16? There's only one chapter, so it's to the right just a little bit, okay? Um, we'll get there in just a minute because uh, it kind of gives us some special teaching here. There's no special social status that makes you more Christian than other. Can you imagine the barrier of a slave which was very common in Paul's day, um, being in church with people who owned slaves. That was really common. There's even more commonality in this, or, or a more radical thing that, that happened. We'll have Sally read to us about here in just a minute. But the idea here is, can you imagine if when a, a, a person who was owned by another person or a family, came to the church, can you imagine what it would be like if Paul or someone else said, well, okay, you've got to become, you've got to earn your freedom first before you can become a Christian. That was a lifetime pursuit for some people who were enslaved. And frankly, many of them didn't achieve that even before their death. So there's no social distinction here. Um, in, in the little, little book of Philemon, it's just one chapter long, uh, Paul uh, talks to a slave owner about a runaway slave. Uh, it's just wonderful sociological teaching here. But Sally, would you read just verse 16? 
no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, what you need to know, and many of you probably do already know this, that Paul was referring to a guy by the name of Onesimus, who was Philemon's former slave who had run away. Onesimus had become not a pastor in a church. He had become that at one time. He had become a bishop over several churches. This was a slave. And it was very common in the, in the first century church for slaves to be in leadership in the church over masters. I find that kind of amazing. Well, first of all, I find it kind of amazing that, that slavery ever existed. But isn't it interesting how the barriers, the walls, were broken down in Christ, even in that horrible sociological backdrop. So there's no, um, there's no social distinction, no ethnic distinction. Okay, let's talk about one more. This is really important. There is no sexual distinction. Okay, now be careful what you listen to on TV, all right? Because if you listen to the wrong people, you'll reach the conclusion that the church has put women down throughout history. If we have, it wasn't because we were following Jesus. Jesus has done more to elevate the position of women throughout history and in society than anybody before him or since. You think about all the encounters he had with women, all the value he placed on women. You notice he never uses the word heiress. There was no such thing. Jesus changed all that and said, you're my daughter, heir to the throne of the kingdom of God. What a wonderful thing that there is no distinction in this. And of course, Paul in verse 28 uh, kind of closes out his thinking here uh, about no uh, divisions. Uh, I like the very last phrase of verse 28. For you are all one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Years ago I read a story and uh, I, I read it in a commentary that, that is um, um, it, it's pretty likely that this is true but the story is told about some soldiers that were fighting in France in World War II and um, one of their comrades, one in their platoon, was killed in battle. And being in a remote place, they wanted to give him an appropriate burial before they moved on. They had to move on down to a, to a different line. And um, so being in a foreign country, they wanted to ensure that their fallen comrade had proper burial. So they found a well-kept cemetery in the town where they had been fighting. It had a low stone wall around it and a picturesque little Catholic church and a peaceful outlook. And they thought this will be a beautiful place to bury our comrade. But when they approached the priest, he answered that unless their friend was a baptized Catholic, he could not be buried in the cemetery. And he wasn't Catholic. So the priest in kind of a, kind of a, uh, uh, reaching a little bit as far forward as he thought he could, pointed to a place outside the wall, outside the fence, and said, why don't you, you can bury him over there. So they did. They were leaving this area the next day. 
and they came back by to check, to pay kind of final respects to their fallen friend and check on his gravesite, but they couldn't find the grave. And so they said to them, surely we're not mistaken, it was right here yesterday. And so confused, they approached the priest who took them to a spot now inside the cemetery, inside the gate, inside the fence, inside the walls. And he said to them, you know, last night I couldn't sleep. I was troubled that your friend had to be buried outside the cemetery fence. So I got up in the, move, in the middle of the night and I moved the fence. But you know, what Paul's talking about here is what Jesus did for you and me. He made outsiders insiders. He moved the wall. He broke down the barrier. He pushed back the fence. And the truth is, guys, if I ever have a tendency to read the scriptures and think of myself as an insider, I need to be, I'm sadly mistaken. If it required what some of these that are being, that are being taught here, if it required what they thought it required, I'm an outsider. But Jesus moved the fence for me, included me in this wonderful thing called faith and Christianity. Now, let's read the next five verses or so. Uh, Sally, if you still got the, the mic over there, would you read Galatians 4, 1 through 5? We're just going to go to the next chapter here for a few minutes. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Okay. Now think about this for a minute. Sally, I'm going to have you go one other place if I can get you to. to Hebrews 1 verse 2. We'll get there in just a minute. Hebrews 1, verse 2. Now, the idea here is, he begins to talk about the difference between a son and a slave, the difference between an owner and a non-owner. And he says, uh, that he's going to invoke this idea in verse 1, that an underage son has no more is no more powerful than a household servant. He may own it all, but that's kind of someday. He's not going to have any, any power over that which is owned by his father until he becomes of age. The, the truth is, and it's talked about here in verse 2 and 3, a son's rights in those days were restricted by their age. Now, it it's, uh, seems to be appropriate to, to think about Roman culture into which Paul was born, a Roman Jewish culture especially, but, but in particular in Roman culture, in Roman custom, the heir of the father's estate is under the supervision of someone who both um, uh, teaches him and protects the son until age 14. After that age, his life is under the control of another person who supervises him or restricts his decisions until age 25. It's only after that age uh, that the son receives full rights as heir. So in other words, 
uh, a 14 year old, a 15 year old in Roman culture couldn't decide to, um, to blow all of dad's money on a Maserati. They didn't have those then. That's why he couldn't do no, no. He couldn't do that. He, was, he had a steward, somebody watching over him, a supervisor, a trainer. And then when he got 14, he was handed another supervisor, another trainer, until he got fully to, to age 25. Don't you know there are a lot of uh, Roman boys who bought Maseratis at 26? But okay, that's kind of the idea. Uh, so he's, he's using this idea that a son's rights are restricted by his age, even as an heir. But then in verse 4, which is another really, really important New Testament verse, especially here within the context of Galatians 4, or, or the book of Galatians. When the time is right, this is a verse that we occasionally use at Christmas time, God decisively acted to redeem us, to make us heirs of it all. Sally, do you mind to read Hebrews 1, verse 2? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. You notice here, he became heir. But in, here in Galatians 4, 4, one of the ways he did that, he had been heir from the beginning. But one of the ways he lived that out was becoming subject to the law on your behalf. The book of Philippians says that he emptied himself, taking the form of the servant. One of the ways he served you and me is he lived for 33 years under the law. God sent his son under the law that he might decisively redeem us. That's kind of the idea. And so in verse five, he, it's the idea that you and I have been redeemed. To redeem here is to pay a price that gives you and me freedom. I was with a colleague this week who was celebrating a little boy that is in their family. This is my colleague's uh, grandson. And on this particular day, they were celebrating Gotcha Day. Never heard this term. I think it was made up by this family. Other families probably use other terms. But this little boy was adopted when he was a little baby. And so now every year, he not only has his birthday, his regular birthday, but they also celebrate. And my guess is they celebrate with more intensity even his gotcha day. Because that's the day we gotcha. Isn't that beautiful? You know what? I don't remember the date, but I remember the time when I was adopted into the family of God. If you remember that date, it's not important, you know, God's not gonna meet you at the pearly gates and ask you what your salvation date was. I think some people kind of think that. But you and I have had a gotcha day. You know, a day when you were grafted in you're adopted. You're redeemed is the word here. Now look at the last two verses, then we'll quit. All right, verse six. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
So the outcome of this equality is uh, literally we all have the, been given the right. We didn't earn it, but we've been given the right by Jesus to call his father our father. Um, if you read um, the Lord's Prayer in places like uh, Luke 11, you'll realize he begins it with when they ask him, Lord, how should we pray? We want to pray like you. And he says, you can begin it with our father. We've been given the right, the privilege as with, by our older brother, Jesus, to call his father our father. And then he goes one step further here and talks about an intimate name of the father. My question to you is, what's your favorite title for your dad? What's your favorite title for your dad? Uh, do all three of you guys call your dad daddy? Just you, okay. Um, uh, it's interesting, you know. Um, I, I called my dad a lot of different things, and all of them affectionate. Uh, they really were. Because he called me 17 different things. They, you know, it's just, it's, he had a name for everybody. And several for me, as his only mistake. But, uh, um, isn't it interesting that not only has Jesus given you the privilege here, he's given you the right to call his father your father, but in this verse, you can address him intimately. Uh, now be careful what you do with this. Uh, one commentator I read this week said, he's not saying call God daddy, but there is a warm affection to this term Abba in Aramaic. And you and I are not only given the privilege of saying, my father, but of calling, addressing him warmly as father. And the proof, just one other concept here and then we'll close. The proof of that inheritance is the spirit alive inside you. I wish I had five minutes to talk about that. We'll move on from that. So the idea here is, being a part of God's family is not as simple as being inside or outside. In the first century, Jews thought themselves as insiders. If that's true, then all of us were outsiders until Jesus invited us in. I'm glad I was invited inside. I'm glad you were invited inside. Here's my challenge to you. My challenge is to you. What are you doing this week to invite someone else inside? My guess is if you're listening to the spirit of Christ at work inside you, he's going to say, you know what? She doesn't feel apart. Invite her inside. He doesn't feel like he fits. Invite him inside. If you've ever been like me and been the victim of, of just feeling like you didn't fit, how wonderful is this teaching to the future of the Christian faith, of the church, even of this congregation? I need to be an inviter, not an excluder. And I want to listen to the Holy Spirit tell me how I can live that out. Okay, we'll be in 
We'll, we'll pick up right here in Galatians 4 next week. I'll see you.